0: Well I'm anticipating opening Matthew twelve, I do want to say that I have over my time here become more and more um this will sound odd, but proud of my church, if I can say it that way. Paul said that he was uh he, he counted the Thessalonian church as his pride and joy. Um I'm not, you know, saying that even from a leader's perspective, I'm just saying it as a participant at Anchorage Grace. I really do commend our church to people because of the family feel that we have here. And no matter if the crowd is lighter or or heavier or whatever, there is just a very strong family vibe that is unmistakable and, and felt by me week after week. So I anticipate coming to church, not in terms of my job or duties or what I get to do but just to be with you and to be here is a privilege and blessing and it plays right into uh, our text that comes to me. I don't usually find a text. The text finds me as it's the next text in the uh, sequence of scripture and this one is very family focused because in it Jesus is making the clear point that he is prioritizing his spiritual family above even his flesh And blood physical family. It's a very striking stand that Jesus takes. And he takes it not only in the sense of separating himself unto a spiritual family, which we are part of that family. But also separating from a physical family so as to be a distinct witness to them. That clear line of demarcation, that clear um, division is the powerful witness that we're going to see from our text this morning something we've all dealt with as a believer you had something happen in your heart that supernaturally changed you the Lord changed your heart you're a new creature and what that did for you is it reset all of your relationships there's an amazing reset that takes place when you become a Christian It should be demonstrable. It should be something that is felt, that's visible, that people are responding to. It should be very natural. It's not like you become cold-hearted to people on the outside. You're some kind of bigot. You're some kind of, you know, off-putting person as a separatist. No, it's that you, as a Christian, gravitate away from the world and you move towards those who are part of the church, those who are in the family of God. The lights turn on. I put it this way to someone who recently said, I've never been able, as a new believer, he said, I've never been able to hold conversations as long as I can now. And I never could before with family members who are Christians. I, there's, there's something to talk about and keep talking about that I never had before in my life. And I said, well, what happened is you became a Christian and so you were fit with a well a well, uh, something where you have a depth of resource to draw from as you talk to fellow believers. It's an experience that we all should have. We separate ourselves from the world. Be not conformed to this world. Um, be transformed with the renewing of your mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Also, be separate, Second Corinthians six seventeen. Those are synony- synonymous acts. And it's very demonstrable in your relationship. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blesses a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. You're just different. Your, your love for the word, your love for Jesus compels you to people who do the same, who feel the same, who talk the same. Who sing the same way. You sing to each other. You sing with each other. You want that Christian fellowship. It's a natural outcome of a changed heart. Paul said, what fellowship has light with darkness or Christ with Belial? It's uh, the same idea of Ephesians 4. Where we are now children of the light. We're no longer carousing in the darkness. We're not hiding anything. We're out in the light. But we want to be with people who are in the light. We, we do that. We love one another, and people say, that's an uncommon kind of love. It's unique. It's different. It's something that I don't see happen in other kinds of communities, and so I might want in something that is not um, doable outside of the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy twenty-two ten says, you're not to yoke an ox with a donkey because they can't cut a straight furrow in the field. It's answering what fellowship has light with darkness. You can't be unequally yoked because it doesn't work anymore. At my senior year in high school is when I became a believer. I was uh, 17 turning uh, 18 in February. So it was somewhere October, November, December, I came to life. I didn't know I'd come to life, but I thought I was a Christian. I thought I was just kind of rebelling against God as a Christian, but I was not a Christian. And I did not have any time for unbelievers until I became a Christian. When I became a Christian, the little Bible study group that prayed before school that I thought was the weirdest possible thing happening at my high school became my new haven of refuge. And I walked in there and I was with family members. When you become a Christian, you don't have to establish a lot of rapport. It doesn't take long to establish rapport with other believers. If you are genuinely a believer, you don't need um, other props in the relationships. Usually in some kind of bridge, some kind of thing in common, you just have Christ in common and it happens. I remember walking down the hallway my senior year and this guy can see I see it clearly in my mind's eye, him saying, where have you been? Why aren't you where we are on Friday nights? Where have you been? And I had not made some calculated decision to separate as much as to join other believers and friends. And that's where I found myself. In his book, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, which is a great book to read, he talks out of the wellspring of his experience where he had been imprisoned, He was imprisoned and he enjoyed fellowship. I I assume he wrote it while in prison because he died a uh, martyr's death. His his mission was to assassinate Adolf Hitler. I believe Adolf Hitler was demonized and uh, he died um, executed at the end of World War II. But he wrote the book Life Together um, describing indescribable fellowship that he experienced while in jail. Um, one quote is, we receive forgiveness instead of judgment. We too were made ready to forgive the brethren. What God did to us, we then did to others. So the more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. Every human wish or dream that's injected in the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of community more than Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may ever be so honest and earnest and sacrificial. He talked about... um, Confrontation. He said that there's a cruel version of confrontation where you're consigning sin to people, but he said nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. This is Christian community. This is what we. Enjoy in the gospel where we can help each other and enjoy relationships with each other. When I have you guys stand up and shake hands, I joke around about how it's nervous to do that. But the more that you do it in the name of Christian community and fellowship, the more you just say, man, I can't live without a nice moment of participation. I want to draw together for a moment like Jonathan and David, where they were hearts knit together in love. They were friends to the end. I was talking last night to a friend from the East Coast. And I'm Facetiming with him, and we never Facetime. We never talk. I don't Facetime with any guys, but or anybody, but but him. You know, we're just old friends from junior high and high school. And he's a pastor, and I'm typing on my back deck, and the sun is like Alaska midnight sun, and it's like one in the morning for him. And he's like on with me, and you know, he's talking, and and we're fellowship. We don't dare pick up the phone because we'll talk for an hour. I'm like, why don't we just? I texted him. Let's just talk for five minutes. I got a sermon to finish. I got to be done, and, and then it's an hour, hour and a half, because we just, we, we've, got, we've got hearts on the table, and we're just like that, and that's Christian fellowship. It's amazing, a friend that sticks closer than a brother, even better when you have the double dose of a biological brother like I have that I'm also in Christian fellowship with. He's a Christian man, and so we're friends, and we talk regularly. My brother and I, he's six foot six, 230. Some odd pounds, whatever, huge. And I'm small and he's got hair dark. I don't. I mean, we don't even look related. And we've got nothing in common but Jesus. And we always talk an hour. I talked like two hours with him uh, last week. I needed him more. And it's just, what is that? Where does that come from? It's Christ that does that in the heart and you should want it. I want you to want that. I want you to to feel the freedom that Jesus gives you permission to come out from the world and go into the family of God. You say, I don't have a, a sibling, a blood sibling that knows Christ or I don't, well, you have them here. You have them here. You have what Christ offers you in the family of God. Holy friendships. You have to drain the tub of muddy water, replug and fill with new water of believers. In the spring of my high school year, I went to a soccer game and I knew that I was born again and genuinely a Christian and walking in fellowship. But some of my old friends, because it was senior year and we're all graduating, they, they came around me and said, hey, come to this last gathering, you know, some party at some house and Friday night just show up. And I knew I wasn't supposed to and hadn't been to those, but I was Going back, so I I went in, walked in the house and, you know, smoke-filled room and underage drinking going on. They're upstairs playing pool and smoking and toking joints. And I said, yeah, no, I'm not part of this crowd anymore. So I I walked out and I'm walking out and the cops are going in. And I said, well, I I guess I'm never going back um, to this world. It was clarified to me in that moment. Usually someone does not go from something to nothing, But in, in Christ, we genuinely leave what's empty and nothing to go to something. Paul said the transformation is so dramatic when you become a believer. If you're married still to an unbeliever who hasn't yet come to Christ, he exhorts in 1 Corinthians 7 to stay with unbelievers so that you can win that person to Christ. Um, A new believer will say, man, I want Christian fellowship so badly, and this is so odd to me that I feel stuck. But there are godly motivations to stay and witness. In 1 Peter 3, um, one says that an unbelieving wife can win, or a believing wife can win their unbelieving spouse without a word by the conduct and godly character. I think 1 Peter 3, 7, a few verses later, is talking to the husband winning the unbelieving spouse. Um, listening, um, living in an understanding way so that his prayers aren't hindered, meaning prayers of evangelism, prayers of gospel witness to win that spouse to Christ. It's a powerful thing to be a new believer, but a new believer finds refuge nevertheless in the family of God. You have the resource of the family of God as brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers. First Peter or first Timothy five talks about it. We are the family of God. And this reset is not just a reset for separation and for fellowship, but it's also a reset for evangelism. How do we win our unsaved family members, our physical flesh and blood family members? You make a stronger, concerted prioritization of the family of God in a visible way where they see it. Separation then becomes evangelism. I am separating myself from my physical family unto my spiritual family. Does that mean that we don't honor father and mother? Of course not. We honor father and mother. We love them. Does that mean we don't take care of our dependents? First Timothy five, eight, forbids that we ignore our dependents. We would be worse than an unbeliever. We take care of them. We love them. We love them with familial love and loyalty and care. But at the same time, as a new believer in Christ, the priority in our hearts becomes the church and the fellowship within the church becomes the witness for our child that's watching us love the family of God in a way that is extra, especially powerful for our spouse as they watch us laugh and sing and find refuge and solace in the word of God. It's a powerful thing to win your unbelieving spouse or your unbelieving kids or your unbelieving parents or the immediate family around you as they watch you in this family and how it's distinct and different and really undo, something that's undoable for them or impossible for them to experience unless they come into the family of God by the Holy Spirit. It's an undeniable strategic witness. And Jesus models this radical relational reset in our text. Let me read it for us. Matthew 12, beginning at verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to them, speak to him. And he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers and stretching out his hand toward his disciples. He said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So, This is the end of a series, by the way, it's been called answering accusations and eight accusations have been made. I'm inferring from this text that they are labeling Jesus, a sociopath, someone who's aloof and even disrespectful to his physical family, to his half brothers who are knocking at the door saying, we just want some time with you. A mom Mary, the mother of Jesus. Hey, we want an audience with you. And Jesus is saying to the crowd I mean, the, the messenger has said, "Hey, they want an audience with you." To the crowd, you are my mother and brothers. That could be on the surface something that comes across even weird for us to hear, <laughs> and uh, hard for us to completely understand. Where's the balance here? Where's the where's the biblical balance of of the both andness here, where Jesus is turning his total whole focus upon the crowd as his family over against his physical family? It could look aloof. It could seem uncaring what Jesus said or did. It could be even viewed as outright sinful. But we have to remember this crowd is um, in need of some evangelism. It's in need of some clarification in this point. And what Jesus is doing is he's leading this crowd to himself. That's who he's addressing. And leadership is verbal, and words matter, and that's what he's doing. He's leading these people, and so he's giving three affirmations, if you're taking notes, that make Jesus' spiritual family the priority. Three affirmations come in this text. The first one is he's relating to his spiritual family, and that's verse 46. It's an affirmation by Jesus just relating to this crowd in the way that he does, He calls them in the text in verse 49, his disciples. So this crowd is whittling down. I think the Pharisees are falling off, at least their influences. There's been eight accusations made and Jesus has countered each one parrying back with a response. And I think it's, I think it's narrowing things down where the people who are staying and seated as Mark three puts it, they're seated now at his feet. They're his disciples and he's relating to them as family members. That's the first affirmation. These are his followers, people that he loves. And he has rebuked the Pharisees. And even in the last accusation that Jesus is some kind of do-gooding liberal, verses 43 through 45, I preached how that's a demon theology where you're trying to put your house in order with with your own moral reform. And he's condemned that. And now he's moving on to say, you, this crowd are my crowd. You are my people. Well, who are, I have to just ask the question, who are the half brothers? Like what spiritual condition are they in? Um, What is the distinction made there? Well, uh, a lot of people, first and foremost, in the Roman Catholic Church don't believe that Mary, um, Mary had actual other babies after Jesus. It's the false doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary but that's not true they try to say that well this must these must have been cousins that were coming with Mary or and that's to venerate Mary in false worship is just a wrong-headed presupposition you can't do that and and Mary is a woman of God I believe she uh, she and Joseph were worshipers they understood the prophecy of the Messiah coming and and it was um, of great um, sort of a special like designation for Mary to have and uh, the baby Jesus as a virgin who conceived by the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's an amazing privilege, but Mary also was a sinner saved by grace, just like you and me. And we're going to learn about her, but um, she's a believer, Joseph, a believer, Mary and Joseph raised Jesus um, together. Some people believe Joseph brought the other siblings into the marriage from a prior marriage. But if they were like married at 12, 13, 14, 15, that's kind of weird to think about. But all that to say that didn't happen. Uh, the text is saying that, that, you know, Jesus is the virgin born. And then you have Mary and Joseph um, who have children together, but these are half brothers of Jesus. And by the way, we're going to read a text that also includes the fact that there were half sisters on the scene in Jesus' family as well. So who are these half-brothers? Well, if you turn in your Bibles to John 7, you see them as unbelievers. Verse 5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. They weren't believers. They were taunting Jesus um, from Galilee to go down to Judea for the Feast of Booze, verse 1 says, and the Jews were seeking to kill him. They might have been sending Jesus on a, hey, go get yourself killed mission. Uh, which is horrible to think they're like Joseph's brothers from Genesis where they sold him into slavery. Um, Jesus did not want to go down to the feast of booze, that ceremony, because his time um, to give his life was was not yet. It had not yet come. But they were saying, if you verse four, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. They were you know, saying, go openly. No one does these works in secret. You know, sh- show up. They were taunting him and you know, uh, Jesus didn't in any way acknowledge their temptations. These jealous brothers weren't, weren't believers. Mark 13 and Mark 6, uh, Matthew 13 and Mark 6 talk about Jesus having half sisters. There was a family there, Joseph and Mary, that Joseph's legacy he probably was was dead at this point, no doubt, because he's not mentioned. The last mention of Joseph was when they hunted for Jesus um, three days looking for him and found him in the temple. But his legacy um, with Mary were these children. But catch it. These kids in Jesus family who were young adults were not yet believers. I just want you to hear that. I mean, there's hope, right, for unbelieving siblings. How can they come to Christ? Will they ever come to Christ? How will this spouse come to Christ? How will this extended family come to Christ? Well, dig deeper into the family of God and see what God does with your relationships here as a witness to them out there. That's what you do. That's the plan. That's the approach that Jesus models for us to follow. You say, but how bad were Mary and, Mary and the half-brothers to ask for an audience. What's the big deal? Well, Mark 3 sheds some contextual light on this, and I want you to turn in your Bibles over to Mark 3. Look at verse uh, 20. Mark 3, verse 20. Uh, Mark 2 verse 1 says they were in Capernaum. Capernaum is due west of uh, the Sea of Galilee area. So there's some miles um, west, but still in that Galilean region in the northern part of your Bible map. And then uh, due south of that, you have uh, Nazareth where Bethlehem is and all of that. That's probably where um, in that region, the Mary and the half brothers were coming from. They probably heard, potentially heard from the Pharisees that Jesus wasn't eating very well. He's starving himself. He's on the mission. He's a crazy man. You need to pull him out. So the Pharisees, they wanted to do harm to Jesus. They wanted him dead, but at least they wanted him taken off the mission field. It's incredible how how wicked um, these men were, but they probably influenced mom to come up and and get their son, um, her son. Mark 3 verse 20, then he went home. Um, so that's that region, probably in Capernaum, probably Peter's house. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when they, the family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So Mary, probably well-intentioned, just like any good mother would do, wants her kid to eat, her adult son to eat. Uh, my wife's not in this service. She was in the first service sitting there when I said it and she smiled. But I mean, when, when Logan is, is hungry and he's kind of a thin guy and he's at college and, you know, doing exam week and she senses that he's not going to the calf. Suddenly UPS is getting a big package wrapped together for her. I don't know what she stuffs in all of that, but mom's going to send something down there uh, because her son's got to eat. You know, he's, he's out fishing right now, commercial fishing, you know, boxes get sent. Uh, things are happening, and, and it's because a mama maternally wants the son to eat. Well, a good intention can turn bad, though, because Jesus is preaching. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is giving the gospel. Jesus is giving his life. The crowds are pressing in. The 12 are with him, and he's, they're preaching the word of God. And this mom's good intention turns into something that's bad and misguided and misdirected because. She's conscripted her unbelieving sons to come in and pull Jesus off the field. And they send a messenger. They, they win some person over because only one person could get inside at that level and, and weave through the crowd to get to Jesus. And that person naively is saying, your mom and brothers want an audience with you. And Jesus is not confused by the moment. He's not pulled off the field. He uses it as an opportunity to talk about the priority of his spiritual family above his biological family. Which, by the way, in this culture of pride and honor with family, this would be very offensive for family members to hear. And for people to hear, listen in on what Jesus just said could come across very offensive, offensively if they didn't understand Jesus' point. So a well-intentioned motive turns into he is out of his mind. It's in the context of the accusation in Mark and Matthew's account of uh, the Pharisees calling Jesus a Satanist. Remember, he does these works by Beelzebul. They commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Then in Mark 3, it's tying it right in. You have this account of family members saying he's out of his mind. Those family members are treading on thin ice in terms of the state of their hearts. We know Mary's a believer, nothing could touch that, but the the brothers are sinking spiritually at this point under Mary as a believer's bad guidance. Joseph's nowhere on the scene. So they're playing with fire. They're playing with fire. But the crowd at this point, Mark 3.32 says they're seated, they're listening, and that sort of ties back in to um, where we are back in Matthew 12. I mean, Mark 3 builds the exact same sort of bookend with this second encounter. They've come to try to pull him off the field, and then they're using the person to come in to to ask for the audience. What's the number one reason that people don't commit to the mission field? (coughs) It was a Desiring God Ministries article. It's under the John Piper ministry that I read a long time ago. Kim um, Ransleben, she's a, she and her husband mobilized college kids to go on the mission field after they graduate. What holds them back? Money, student loans, training, fear, lack of training. The number one barrier is parents, parents being afraid for their kids to go. That's the number one thing. I had a, a really good friend who, uh, when he was saved, he had to take a stand with his unbelieving parents and say, look, uh, you know, God did not call me to have a peaceful household. He was, he was saying, I know you're unbelievers. And, um, you know, we the Crots, we had kind of adopted him. I grew up, we grew up going to each other's houses and, you know, having dinner, to, you know, at each other's dinner table and the whole thing. I loved his parents. But his parents have not yet come to Christ. They didn't know the Lord. So when my friend became a Christian and a sold out Christian, his mom was like, well, it's all right, we're all the same. And he said, no, Jesus came and he came and brought a sword. And he divides households, and he was just calling it out as a seventeen-year-old. I was like, "This, I can't believe he's saying that to his mom," and uh, he was just being bold. But it wasn't offensive yet. It became offensive when this young man went to college. He he went to you know his uh, parachurch you know ministry in college and grew and loved missions. He went to Urbana and you know just had a heart, wanted to go on the mission field. And from his local church in Richmond, they said, we want to send um, you, Bill, to this church in El Paso, Texas, a church plant. And we want you to do child evangelism fellowship there and uh, plant this church. And he did it. And But he had to sit with his wife, his new wife and their baby, with his parents in a tearful discussion to say, we are leaving. We're going across the country. And they, you know, really took it hard. And... and that couple and family went. I went and visited them in El Paso. By the way, when I was considering coming here or going somewhere else, um, I went to El Paso and did a men's retreat there at his church that they had built over years. And I walked the, the streets of El Paso and looked at the Rocky Mountains and, and you know right on the border of Juarez, kind of a dangerous area and stuff. And something filled my heart and I thought, I can go to Alaska. I can do it here because it's, it's just as wild up here as it would be down there. And if Bill can do it, I can do it. So that's why I came up here. I'm not kidding. So, uh, but uh, you, you just look at these kinds of breaks where you say, I'm going to make the spiritual family the priority. Well, the first point is Jesus was relating um, to... Um, The crowd as family. And then secondly, the second affirmation, he's replying to his physical family. So what's his reply in physical family? And by the way, your Bible's not a misprint here. Moving from verse 46 to 48. um, Just some manuscripts don't include um, verse 47. So that was taken out. But verse 48. um, But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? It's a rhetorical question. He's trying to penetrate the hearts of the people that are listening. He's raising the question, who is, who is my mother? Who, who are my brothers? Can sound cruel, but again, he's not trying to dishonor mother. He's not trying to undo her faith. He's trying to redirect things. He's trying to clarify things. He's trying to show out of a motivation um, of evangelism that this family is priority. This is what matters above a physical mother's heart cry right now he's actually risking his relationship with his mom to do evangelism check it he's risking his relationship with mary if for the sake you are my mother that's where he's going who's my mother i mean she's saying hey i want time with you son i'm worried about you who is my mother that's what jesus is doing that's pretty bold In essence, he's calling her out. You're not acting like a spiritual mom to me right now, mom. That's what he's saying. You are my mothers who act spiritually minded, who understand the mission, who understand the church. Jesus is in midstream of preaching and giving himself under his heavenly father's leadership. He's calling out. this crowd to see the priority of the family of god this poor ignorant person that had been conscripted by mary and half brothers were was probably flummoxed not knowing what to do now does that mean jesus didn't take care of his mom no we know while jesus was dying on the cross he cared for his mother john right next to mary looked down he said behold your mother and to john um Saying that and then to his mom saying, behold your son. He made the connection. He made the provision for his mom. He cared about her for her physical needs, whether she was a believer or not, um, though she was. He was going to care for her. He was going to be obedient. But he was undeterred in his priorities at this point. As believers, we're members one of another. We have a testimony like no other, and it's a radical love. Remember the harsh test of discipleship where Jesus said to the man who wanted to go bury his father, he said, follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. What is that? There's all kinds of ways that Bible scholars will say, well, you know, probably that person was trying to take five years and, and see, you know, the dad or mom, you know, die over a long period of time and just do right. It's just left Strong and stark in the way that it's said. In other words, the priority to follow Jesus is the higher priority than family here on earth, even if they're dying. It doesn't mean that we don't take care of our family, make arrangements, do our best, do what we can do. It's just that the priority of discipleship, if there's a choice between going to your father's funeral or believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved, you get saved then you go to the funeral probably. But anyway, the point is you follow Jesus. That's Jesus point. Discipleship is the highest call of the believer. I remember I raised a lot of eyebrows from family members and especially my friends, my close friends. When I said, I'm going to go to Alaska and be a preacher, I'm going to do it here. And they were like, what are you doing? Are you thinking in terms of the big picture of what's going to happen? Well, I don't think that way. First and foremost, I kind of live in the moment. And so, but the Lord does things by design and you just go, you go, you get into the flow of what God is doing. What doors are being opened? What doors are being closed? You go in the flow of God's providence and follow the Holy Spirit's leading. And that's the way that people come to Christ. When you were saved, you received that gift that I mentioned before. You received a well to draw from and to enjoy relationships with and Christian friendship. And by doing so, you become an evangelist. You say, how do I evangelize? Get really close in strong Christian friendship with people. Reset your relationships. That's how you win other people to Christ. You gotta gotta build a strong circle of separation to evangelize people. That sounds like a contradiction. What are you talking about? No, you, you go in deep and tight with the family of God so that the people that know you, they say, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing this with us? Well, I'm doing that with them. Do you want to know why? <laughs> That's where the conversations come and people say, how do you carry on the way that you do? How do you have joy in the way that you have it? Because I know the immeasurable greatness, Ephesians 1, 19, of his power toward us who believe, I understand the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints, Ephesians 1, 18. You win the crowd through separation. can come across hateful, but it's really grace. It's grace. It's more loving to draw near to the body of Christ in a way that is impossible to do that with those who are outside the body of Christ. That's what's loving. It's loving to draw near to those inside the body of Christ. And you're drawing near in a way that is impossible for people outside of the body of Christ to draw near. They, they can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit's work and intervention and grace. Drawing near is amazing. You know, a lot of people today will say, well, we need to follow the spirit, it's kind of a bygone um, movement now. It was really last century's movement, but it's You know, it's bled into this century, but it's kind of dying out. It's the ecumenical movement. People say, look, you know, we need to get together. We need to conference. We need to build coalitions. We need to, you know, win America to Christ by being this large crowd with the least common denominator of doctrine. We need to just water everything down, look the other way, hold hands, sing songs, feel vibey together in the name of Jesus, where Jesus is really less and less defined and um, we don't really understand the doctrine for which we're standing on or what we're standing for or what we're standing against. We don't really know who we are. We just know we're part of a movement. That's ecumenism. That's ecumenical. Even Billy Graham, he preached the gospel and I loved him. um, And he's a clear preacher. A lot of people came to faith in Christ through that. But what happened in the Billy Graham movement is so many people were coming under his powerful gift that people didn't, who were on the leadership of uh, the Billy Graham Crusades didn't know where to put people in churches. And so they begin to compromise and put people in liberal churches or Catholic churches just in the name of discipleship. We don't want to turn people away when they come forward. And it waters down the gospel. It, it confuses people. Ecumenism confuses people. I know pastors even locally who had to get on a plane and go down to California, go into different areas to make votes, to vote against um, allowing for like homosexual leadership and things that are happening in denominations. These, these are happening now and I'm not trying to kick up dust where there is no problem. Even, um, you know, a, a Christian leader, can't remember his name. It's probably good. I can't, but he, you know, I, I saw this video and he's taking a stand and he's saying, you know, who cares about whether women are preaching or not? It doesn't matter. You know, just let's not major on those things. They don't matter. But what happens is, is where people stop using the Bible to define their doctrine, but they're using the moment, the circumstances to just try to get all along and make a, make some sort of coalition they lose the gospel. The gospel will go away. And the very truth that's meant to confront sin that unlocks the gravitational pull of people to hell is weakened. People start compromising truth and then the truth that can solve people's spiritual condition evaporates and people go to hell. So we have to hold high the truth, hold high the word of God to keep people to to win people to Christ. People are voting for woke leadership in these denominations, in the Southern Baptist, in in different denominations, liberal Presbyterianism. You can see it and look it up. These are compromises that are gospel compromises in the name of ecumenical um, movements. What's calling the bluff of all this in our culture, by the way, is leftist liberalism. It's so dramatic. The sin is so flamboyant now that the, the nature of things is being clarified for us, where Jesus has always said Christianity is binary. You're either in the family, you're out of the family, you're the sheep or you're a goat. You're either of the children of the light or you're carousing in the darkness. What fellowship has light with darkness? It's always been a big dividing line, but the culture now is so flamboyant that people are going to have to choose Christ or choose um, the world, Outright, and there's no sort of watered down middle ground where you're maybe sometimes or somewhat a Christian, you're either in Christ or you're not. It's binary. All right, let's go to the third point. Jesus is affirming this spiritual family because he's relating to them. He's replying to his family. And thirdly, he's rewarding his spiritual family. What's the reward? Verse 49, and stretching out his hand towards his disciples. That's the reward. He's blessing them. He's saying, you are my family. You are the disciples. He's outlived all these accusations. Think about the accusations. People are saying, you're an insubordinate. You're a rebel. You're a pagan. You're a Satanist. You're a hypocrite. You're a pragmatist. You're a liberal. Now you're a sociopath. And the, the believers are going, hey, we're going to absorb all of those accusations and we're going to stand with Jesus. We're going to stand with Jesus. We are part of the family of God. We don't care if you call us these things. Jesus is blessing this crowd because they're taking a stand with him. It's as if he's saying, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of my, your master. He's blessing them like he blessed the children who he welcomed on his lap. He's saying, you are my children. And the people are saying, you are our Messiah. In the face of these rejections, we give a complete allegiance to the royal family. We are part of the royal priesthood. This is a great display of the doctrine of adoption, where someone who's adopted in the family of God has a relationship with the Lord, where you say, Abba, Father, I love you, Lord. I love you. And I will absorb accusations. I will stand in the fight. I am all in for Christ. And that's where Jesus is saying to them. Here are my mother and my brothers. Here you are. Not those out there. But you in here. Jesus expects nothing more. Nothing less than this. Here are my brothers. Not, and he's, he's clarifying that that. The people in the crowd are his brothers, not the half-brothers. And the people acting like a spiritual mom are those in the crowd, not Mary, the mother of Jesus. The church is the priority, and he counts um, these brothers as his own. And I love the, the personal nature of this. Do you see this? Here are my mother and my brothers. When Jesus counts you family, he looks you in the eye. You know that kind of relationship where people come up to you and they look you in the eye. They care about you. Jesus cares about you. When Mary Magdalene um, recognized Jesus in the garden tomb and the resurrection, um, he said, you know, uh, don't cling to me at this point. Because she threw herself at Jesus, realized, you know, I, you are, you are teacher. You are my Lord and master. And, and he said, we've not yet ascended to the Father. And what, she, what he's doing at that point is he's saying, listen, we are co-equal heirs and we are coming To your God and my God, your Father and my Father—that's the language he used, because he's welcoming her into the family of God. Doesn't mean it wasn't right for her to worship Jesus, but there is this co-equal heir, um, joint um, adoption into the family of God, where Jesus counts us as his brother. That's what the language Hebrews uses. It's incredible. Jesus looks you in the eye. He loves you as a brother or a sister. As a sibling, as a true sibling in his heart, we have that relationship where it's in Christ and it's, it's like we are flesh and blood family members with Jesus. It's an unexpected humility. It's an equality that's not built on wokeism. It's not built on critical race theory. It's undeserved humility on the Lord's part where he gives us grace to join his family. How do you know if you're in his family? Look at verse 50. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. It's incredible. Brother, sister, mother, and, and, and. One commentator said it's not or, or, or. It's and, and, and. It's just plus, plus, plus. Family, family, family. We're in. Heaven is about being with family. Church is about being with family. To picture heaven. It's incredible and Christ is the center and how can we trace the bloodline to the Father? Well, it's the blood of Christ that ties us all together to the true patriarch. Instead of doing the Google search or the internet search or sending your blood DNA to find out what culture, ethnicity you are, I'm not against that. I just don't, it doesn't flip my switch. I I just think... Think about it in this way. We're all tied together in the bloodlines of Christ, and it comes back to the patriarch of our heavenly father who loves us. We're the ones who've been spiritually transformed to pray the prayer, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Watch this. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want your will to be worked out in my life. This is not a work salvation verse. This is not, oh, I do things and that's how I know I'm a Christian. I do things because I want to do things. And the, the changed life, the inner life and the inner nature, the inner connectivity I have with one another is producing the will of God as an overflow out of my life. We do the will of the father. It's incredible. And look at the universal call for whoever does the will of my father. Spurgeon pictured this as Jesus using a routing knife with the, with the, uh, Pharisees saying that your family connection, your entrance into the family is not through some physical bloodline. It's not because you are a Jew. This is equal access and equal interest for anyone, for all comers who will come to Christ. They obey God's word, and in so doing, they do God's will. Hey, this is one of my favorite discoveries this week. This is just kind of weird. It was Spurgeon's commentary in Matthew, and he only wrote one commentary, and it was on the Gospel of Matthew, and I have it. So I was reading it through, and I came to this quote. See if you pick up on what I saw. He says, a true believer will do the right thing. We may always find the rule of conduct asking this question. What would Jesus do? I kid you not, WWJD, there it is, all the, all the bracelets. It comes back to Spurgeon, Spurgeon. He was the true hipster of old. What would Jesus do? Then it's, it's a good piece of wisdom, asking what Jesus would do. How, does, how did Jesus follow the will of his father? Well, it's the same way that we need to follow the will of our father. He broadens the idea here. We're brothers and sisters, but we're all following the same father in heaven. These are the ones that are my brother and sister and mother. We're all on the path with Jesus. It's the same thing he was doing with Mary Magdalene. He's saying, he's saying, join me. It's your God, my God, your father, my father. Join up in this family, in this mission. All right, so did his family members join? That's the question. Got to dangle that out there. What happened to the half brothers and sisters and his mother? Well, we know his mother was saved, but did she, you know, kind of get right Um, With all of this. God's word doesn't leave this to mystery. Half brothers who mocked him. And were taunting him. They were the ones also counted. I believe on the mountainside. When Jesus gave the great commission. uh, After he was raised. How do I get this? Well 1 Corinthians 15. 6 and 7 says Jesus was raised. And he appeared to more than 500 brothers. That's that hillside great commission moment. And he appeared to James. James here is a reference to the half brother of Jesus. James. You have. You know, James and John, who are the sons of thunder, but that James died an early martyr's death. And so you have the half brother who remains who in church history was known as Camel Knees because he was a devout praying believer. He was one of the three pillars of the early church as James and John and Cephas or Peter were these pillars, Acts 12, 17, Acts 15, 13 to 21 with the Jerusalem council. It shows James standing up and standing for the new Gentile converts saying you don't have to follow dietary laws of the Jews to be counted as part of the family of God. Acts 21, 18 also talks about this. Galatians 2, 9, James, Cephas, John, who seemed to be pillars. Um, They were perceiving the grace of God and giving fellowship to Barnabas. And to Paul. James was uh, the one who wrote the book of James. So we know we have one convert. What about the other half-brothers? We also have Jude. Jude is another New Testament writer. He was a half-brother of Jesus. Just interesting to know that. And I get this from Matthew 13, 55 and 56. It says, people were saying, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary called Mary? And are not his brothers, here are the names of his half-brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and you shorten that to Jude, and that's our book of Jude, that's that half-brother who was a, gospel or a, uh, a writer of an epistle to warn the church of false teachers. And, our, and look at the next phrase, verse 56. Matthew 13:56 says, "Here's the sisters, And are not all his sisters with us?" Now, it's an undetermined amount. We don't know how many sisters there were, but there were sisters. Um, where then did this man get all these things? So what happens to the rest of the half brothers and what happens to the sisters? Acts one fills us in. It's a fitting close. Christ is, is raised. He's been preaching on the kingdom of God for 40 days before he ascends. He ascends. And at his ascension, Acts one, 12, and then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Olivet, that's where Jesus is going to return. That's where he ascended from. It's in Bethany. It's due east of Jerusalem. It's where Jesus had gone, on, gone in on the foal of a donkey um, to Jerusalem to be killed and died on the cross, um, Passover week and all of that. And then he was raised, he preached 40 days, and then he's back at Olivet and he's, he's preaching and he ascends. And so then Acts 1.15, 120 um, who are listening to Jesus preach, they go into Jerusalem to the upper room. And that's where we pick up on Acts 1.13. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, now just some of the highlights of the people who were there. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Those are the 11 apostles. And it's just minus Judas Iscariot, who's gone away apostate. But then verse 14, listen to this. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. Who are the women? Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So you have the women. I take that to be the sisters. Doesn't say it directly, but hey, I just believe the best. The sisters, you have Mary, Mom, and then you have the brothers. You say, well, is it just two of the brothers? I just think all the brothers got saved. I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of left at that level of clarity for us. You have, you have brothers. You have women, who I take as sisters, and you have Mary. And they're there devoting themselves to Jesus. They are physical family members, and they are, you know, kind of half-brother, half-sisters, but you get what I mean. But they're also, they're also spiritual family members. That's the higher priority. So clear separation, men evangelism, and conversion. Here's some points of application number one important to see that real fruit from jesus drawing a real line between his physical family and spiritual family there was real fruit it's a marked difference that became the witness also this the relational reset is your witness is perhaps the most powerful way for you to win your family to christ your bio family how do you do it you reset your relationships they meaning in acts one um they were there in the end It's what we all want to see in our lifetime. And we all want to see our biological, physical family there on the last day, don't we? We pray for them. We love them. And so be strong in the body of Christ as that witness for them.